Well, welcome to church. It's so good to be here with you guys. I hope that you guys had a fantastic Christmas. I know it looked different for a lot of us. Um, definitely a different time of season, but it was good for, I know, a lot of us as well. I know it was so good for me and my family, Maddie and Izzy and I, to sit around the, the couch and watch some good old Christmas movies that we got to watch. I found out my two-year-old daughter, Izzy, who is the cutest thing, she's over there if you want to say hi, hi, Izzy. She likes, she loves, actually loves, she's probably seen it 15 times now, The Grinch. Jim Carrey's The Grinch, which I thought for a two-year-old, that's super scary, super creepy. Like the way he smiles and laughs, super creepy for a kid to like, but she loves it. You should hear her say, the, 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 the Grinch, it's the cutest thing. But one of my all-time favorite classics that I love is the movie Elf. Anybody else with me? Movie Elf? Yes. Will Ferrell is just brilliant. There is nothing better than seeing him chug a two-liter of Coke and then giving the loudest burp in the world. I'm 27 years old, and I will laugh till I'm 60 at that same stupid thing. But I wanted to give you some behind-the-scenes footage of my favorite Christmas movie, The Elf. Because when, when I was watching this movie, I came across, and I used, or watching this behind-the-scenes footage, I came across on the YouTube rabbit hole, which is a dangerous place to be. But I was watching how they made Elf, and I thought, this totally ruined the movie for, you, for me. If it ruins it for you, I'm not sorry at all. But So one of my favorite scenes his elf, right, sitting in class, and he's just giant, right? He looks like he's in a giant, or in a tiny building, tiny people, but he's just massive, which the whole basis of the story is he thinks he's an elf, so it just adds more of the comedy of, like, obviously not. But go to the next slide, Norbert. This is how they made this scene. So what you see on the screen was that last slide, but what you see in the movie, but what you, what's reality is this. He's sitting 10 feet away on top of, like, a two-foot platform. Now, they did this, I always thought they did like CGI, like they figured it out with the camera, they shrunk the people. I don't know. I don't make movies, but this is how they made this scene. It's called forced perspective. You move people for, forward or backward. Now go to the next one, Norbert. Here's another one of my favorite scenes. Anybody remember when Buddy the Elf was learning how to ride a bike in the North Pole? His dad's like, whoa, slow down, buddy. There's a cruising around. Well, it's not actually his dad that's holding on to his shoulders. They put a four-year-old kid in a jacket, and they have him behind him putting his hands up on his shoulders. So when you watch the scene, it looks like his dad is behind him. Like, oh, slow down, buddy, but it's not even him. And I thought, well, this is just dumb. <laughs> it's ruining the whole thing. There's another one. I don't have a picture for this one, but when they were filming the movie in New York City, they only had two weeks to film all their New York City shots. And so they just went out to New York City, no permits, no advertising, no nothing. And so if you remember from the movie when Buddy the Elf runs up, he says, Santa, to the guy in the orange jumpsuit. That's a real guy. He's not an actor. He had no idea Will Ferrell was behind him. So just some more tidbits about this. But I share this with you because forced perspective changes the entire way we see the movie Elf. And many movies have done this. They've used forced perspective to kind of change the way we see it on screen. And I think this is really important. As we've been in this series called Impossible that we're closing today, it's our last message on impossible. We've been talking about how God has done some impossible things, how situations, they look like this, but in fact, to God, they look like this, and they're super easy to overcome. We just had a lady up on stage a few weeks ago talking about how she was cured from her Hodgkin's lymphoma. God just miraculously healed her. There is no cure for this, right? God is the cure when things like this happen. Amazing testimony. A few weeks before that, we had Rob Krantz up here talking about his relationship with his dad. Completely impossible, difficult, so much, you know, just bitterness and frustration. And all of a sudden, God works. And the, the relationship is reconciled and healed. It's like we have been seeing God work in so many amazing ways. And I want to ask you, 
What are some of the challenges that maybe you've faced, maybe today or in your life? And, you know, for some of us, our greatest challenge will be, you know, not being able to see the Vikings win a Super Bowl. And that's very, <laughs> not a very big challenge, but it is frustrating. But let's be honest. Let's be honest. Some of us in this room, maybe in your marriage, maybe you're on the brink of divorce. Or maybe you've just got some really tough stuff happening in your marriage right now, and it's really hard. Or maybe for you, it's, it's not marriage because you're not married. But every day you wake up with crippling anxiety and self-esteem issues and fear, and it feels like you can't get out of bed, and all you want to do is just sit and just think about all your problems, and it's just life is difficult. Maybe for you, it's, it's an addiction. And, you know, we talk a lot about drugs and alcohol, because we have a lot of that here at New Open. God has done a lot of miraculous things, even through me in those situations. But let's be honest, there's more addictions than just drugs and alcohol. There's gambling and pornography in so many different ways that we fall into these difficult sins and these difficult challenges in our lives. But I want to encourage us today, because I know it already sounds very bleak, but I want to encourage us, just like the way that Elf uses Forced perspective to make it look different on screen. God uses forced perspective in our own lives a lot of times. And we're going to be talking about the story of David and Goliath today and how forced perspective is used in this story. For the next two hours, we're going to be reading the story. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, come on, people. But we all know the story. And before you're like, oh my goodness, David and Goliath, again, it's Youth Pastor Sunday, right? <laughs> Give them the easiest story in the world. Nobody's going to date her anyways after Christmas. I'm kidding. But there's some deep truth to this story of David and Goliath that oftentimes this story, and I don't mean this in like a pretentious, like I have the right answers, but oftentimes I hear the story preached in a way that's not theologically correct. And the reason why that is, and, and the reason that's bad is because it turns a lot of us to, to believe some different things just by twisting the story a little bit. And we're going to get into that. But here's what the story says. So we know the story, right? The, the Philistines are on one side of the, the valley. The Israelites are on the other side of the valley. It's a cold war for 40 days and 40 nights. Nobody's attacking because there is no way to attack. It's only head on. You can't go around the valley. You can't go up the mountains. You can't sneak up on people. That's how they did battle back then. So it's really just head on battle and it's going to be a bloodbath. And nobody wanted to initiate that because you don't want your people to die. So then what the Philistines do is they finally send out Goliath. And Goliath is taunting the Israelites saying, come on, send somebody to fight me. Is anybody scared? Are you guys scared? What's going on? Some, send somebody to fight me. And here's where we're going to pick up the story, where David is going to fight Goliath. It says in verse 41 of 1 Samuel 17, it says, Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy. Now, theologians actually think that David was somewhere between 12 and 15 years old when he fought Goliath. Now, if you got a 12 or 15-year-old in the room or at home, I want you to put that in your own perspective, right? You're thinking, no way <laughs> is my kid fighting them. But he says, he said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God saying, come here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and to the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and he struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. And so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. 
Now the story goes on a little bit further, but how it ends is David actually steps over Goliath's body, takes his sword out of his hands, and I'll put it nicely because there's kids in the room. He separates his head from his body. Now I share that last detail with you because it's going to prove very important as we talk more about what this story truly means. Now the problem that I see with this story and the problem that I see with the way that it's taught a lot of ways is sometimes preachers and teachers get in this mode where they really want to bring in some encouragement. And they know that everybody is struggling in their own way. We all face challenges. We all face sins. And so it often gets preached like this. You got to slay. You got to take out our slings. We got to take out our swords, whatever we got to do. And we got to slay our giants. You got an annoying boss at work. Come on, you got to slay your giant, right? You got to quit your job. You got a toxic relationship in your life. You got a toxic friend. Come on, slay that giant. Get that person out of your life. Come on, make your life better. Come on, you got to slay your own giants. But that's not the story at all. Here's what I want you to know about the story of David and Goliath. You and me, we are not David in this story. We are not David. I know sometimes we, we think that we are David, but we are not David. We, do you want to know who is David? I think we all know already. David is a picture of, of Jesus. And here's how we see that play out. Now we have Goliath and we have David. Super big underdog story. How in the world is a, is a boy 12 to 15 years old supposed to defeat and slay a giant like Goliath? He's nine foot nine inches tall. How is this even possible, right? Huge underdog story. And the Bible says in 1 Samuel 17, 4 that Goliath was a warrior and he was a champion. Not only was he super intimidating, super big, huge, he's, nobody can face him. Literally, he's killed probably hundreds of other men who have tried to attack him. He's too big. He's too strong. He's too good at fighting. So what are the Israelites supposed to do? They need somebody brave enough to go up and fight him. But here's what we need to know about Goliath. Not only is he huge and intimidating, a lot of times when people get that big, this is what theologians have kind of discovered about Goliath and the Philistines, that there's like a whole breed of Goliaths and the Philistines. It wasn't just like, oh man, we have a giant. Let's send him out to fight us. They had a bunch of giants. And what they discovered about Goliath after doing some genetic research and history and all these things about giants, because there's been many giants in our world today, right? We have Andre the Giant, and there's been a few others, but if you're into wrestling, you know who Andre the Giant is. But all of these giants, or most of them, have had this disease called acromegalia. And what this disease does is it kills your senses gradually as you age. And so a lot of these giants, they have poor eyesight, or they're actually completely and fully blind. And this is where we read in the story when, when Goliath says, am I a dog that you should come at me with sticks as David is walking towards him? It was like sticks. Like we don't know exactly what David is using as a slingshot. It might be the classic. We don't know. But David or Goliath, he saw what he thought was sticks. And we read the NIV, but if you go into other translations of the Bible, it'll say that Goliath kind of, he looked around, he kind of scanned the valley because he heard somebody was coming towards him, but he couldn't really see what was happening. And so what we're seeing in the story is that there's a possibility that Goliath might have some real weaknesses. And then we shift over to David. David's the shepherd boy. Now, when we talk about shepherds, we often think that they're very weak, right? They just sit there with their staffs and they just kind of tend to their sheep all day long. Then they go to sleep at night. But in fact, if you read the Bible and you study what shepherds actually did in their role, these guys were trained to fight off lions and tigers and bears and so many other wild animals because they had to protect their sheep. So oftentimes shepherds were very skilled with slingshots and clubs. 
But here's the reality about Goliath, right? He's, he's a champion. He's a warrior. He can fight with a sword better than anybody else. So if David attacks him with a club, it's not going to work. But he's also skilled with a slingshot. And what we're starting to learn about this is that there's some perspective that we need to see. Because while we all kind of look at our own Goliaths in our own lives as these giants that are too big to overcome, do you know what God sees? He sees a giant that has weaknesses and is nothing to overcome. I know some of us are, are dealing with anxiety or depression or self-esteem issues, maybe addictions or marital issues, whatever's happening in your life. We all have giants in our lives that are too big for us to overcome. But when we live in the power of God and we use God's perspective, he doesn't look at these like, oh my goodness, this is gonna take a lot of work because these are really big giants. God's strength and God's sovereignty is over everything. Goliath means nothing to God. Goliath means everything to the Israelites. He is life and he is death. If they can defeat Goliath, they live. If they don't, they die. He is everything to the Israelites right now. He is the great barrier. He is like the great wall that they have to overcome, but they don't have anybody to do it until David comes. We see a skilled shepherd boy kill a giant with weaknesses. And the way that God is using this story is to teach us that while our sin and while our struggles and while our challenges look so big for us to overcome, like how in the world are we supposed to get through our difficult marriage? How in the world am I supposed to get through my, my bouts of depression? God sees it in a whole different light. And this is why it's so important to understand that we are not David, that Jesus is David. Because if we become David in this story, we become the hero of our own story. And how many of us have overcome sin by our own power and by our own strength? Not one of us. This is why the Apostle Paul says in the book of Ephesians that we are saved by grace through faith by way of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's not by our own works. It's not by what we can do. It's not by how strong we are or how strong we can become if we just pray harder. It is only always Jesus he is the one who was sent. He was the one who was skilled. He is the one who had the power to overcome sin, hell, and the grave, which is the real Goliath that you and I face every single day. Jesus was sent. He was the warrior on our behalf, just like David was the warrior on behalf of the Israelites. And if we live like we are David, we're going to run ourselves exhausted you're going to wake up every single day thinking that you just have to pray harder. You are so bad at reading the Bible. You just got to read the Bible more to be a better Christian. You are so bad at serving. Oh, I just got to serve better today so I can be a better Christian. God will love me more. This is not the story of the gospel or the Bible or Jesus at all. You know, I, I love the country that we live in here in America. It is, it is a beautiful place. You know, we have so many issues, which we've seen over the last 10 months. I think we can agree on that. But it's a beautiful blessing to live in a place like America. Let's be real. But the problem that happens that I see with American Christians and American way of thinking is that ever since the 1700s, when we became a country, we have been run by rugged individualism and capitalism and, and pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps and working really, really hard to make yourself successful, which is a great way to be successful. 
right? When it comes to your work and your job, sure, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, work hard, be successful, do the best you can, make the best you can with what you have. That's the American dream. That's a great dream. But when we transport this line of thinking into our faith, it is so damaging because then we become the rugged individual who has to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps to be the best Christian we can possibly be on our own strength. And that is not the story of God. God has called us to surrender to him, to give our lives to him, to receive the free gift of grace that he gives us. This is why David, when he is going to defeat Goliath, he picks up how many stones? He picks up five smooth stones. Now, if you're into numerology in the Bible and understanding what numbers mean in the Bible, which I know many of us are, see it on Facebook all the time with Revelation and is Jesus coming back? I don't know, honestly. (laughs) But in the Bible, we see 666 is the number for the mark of the beast. The number six is the mark of is the, the number for man. We also see the numbers three and seven and twelve. Those are often the numbers for God. They mean completion and perfection. But what does the number five mean? It means grace. Five, the number five is a symbol for grace all throughout the Old and New Testament. And I believe that this is a picture that God has planted in this story to give us the real perspective for how we are called to follow God and understand our salvation and the challenges that come with living our lives. That we are saved and we are transformed by the grace of God. Our weapon against our challenges is receiving and living and fighting by the grace that God has given us. It's not about how much can you read your Bible. It's not about how hard can you pray. It's not about how do you lift your hands in worship? Because if you don't, you might not be fully saved yet. No, it's not about that. It's not about how good of Christians can we be. It's about surrendering to Jesus. So if you got problems in your marriage. I'm just going to use this as an example. If you've got problems in your marriage and maybe divorce has been sort of on the horizon or maybe you're not quite there yet, but you're trying to figure it out. How do we get through these marital issues? Well, as somebody with a perfect marriage, I'll tell you. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I've been married five years, guys. I have a lot of tips. I'm kidding again. <laughs> Tough crowd, guys. <laughs> How do we get through these marital issues. Well, if we're honest with ourselves, the problem with marriage isn't marriage itself. God created marriage to be a perfect union in the book of Genesis with Adam and Eve. Marriage is a beautiful thing. The problem with marriage is the people. It's the in-laws. I'm kidding. My mother-in-law is sitting right there. <laughs> I had to say that. <laughs> I'm kidding. I love you. <laughs> No, but it's the people in the marriage. I mean, I look at Maddie and I, and you know, we, we have great days and we have bad days. And you know what the bad days come from? One of us, let's be honest, mostly me, <laughs> is probably being lazy or selfish or, frust- or just, there's so much sin in our lives. And there's so many times where I find myself and Maddie's frustrated with me and it's like, I don't want to really admit that I'm being lazy, but I'm being lazy. <laughs> it's like the reason my marriage is rocky today, exact issues. We think it's this, we think it's that, we think it's this, but when it comes down to it, it's sin. You know, I look at some of the, the depression, the anxiety that I've felt in my, in my own life and my struggle in my past with self-esteem issues and just struggling. And I, I realize this maybe is not across the board. I'm going to make a general statement, but if this isn't how you feel, just you don't have to run with it either. But this is how I felt. Whenever I've had to pull myself out of, like by God's grace, pull myself out of depression, you know what I've realized? 
I'm thinking about myself way too much. My whole world becomes about me. And then I get frustrated and depressed because I'm not enough. Even though the Bible says I'm a child of God, it's like, yeah, but I'm also too small. I'm twitchy because I have Tourette's. I have so many things wrong with me. And I get depressed because my whole world revolves around me. And maybe that's not your story with depression and anxiety, but it's mine. Or maybe for you, you know, you're struggling. Your challenge is some sort of an addiction, whether it's pornography or or gambling or drugs or alcohol. The reason why we go to these things isn't because, oh yeah, I like beer. It's good. Tastes really good. Well, that's true. What pain are you trying to hide because you don't want to deal with it? What sin are you trying to just, oh, don't want to deal with it? What world are you trying to escape as you watch things that you're not supposed to watch? We try to escape reality with these things that we get addicted to and all we're doing is covering up our sins when Jesus said, no, I have saved you by grace. The way to overcome these sins isn't by pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps and just trying to work harder and trying to follow Jesus better. It's by surrendering to the God who gave you grace. I think this is something that we all need. We all need to have this perspective, this new perspective about who we are and who God is, that he is the true and perfect savior who loves even sinful people. But really, if we look at ourselves and who we are, man, I mean, we're good people. We do good things. I'm not trying to tell you you are all bad and and I'm all bad, but let's be honest. We have so many bad tendencies, bad sins, and huge struggles. And honestly, if if we're gonna be real about ourselves, we are the issue. And I know that that sounds so bleak, but we need to have this perspective. If we want to slay Goliath in our lives, if we want to let Jesus slay Goliath in our lives, sin is too powerful. It's too big. We need a true and perfect savior. And his name is Jesus. David was not divine in any way, but he came as a picture of Jesus. As David slayed Goliath, I can imagine what the Israelites were thinking as they were watching their Goliath fall. Because they didn't see just an enemy defeated. They didn't see just, oh my gosh, this great big barrier that was in front of us is now gone and we're not going to be slaves. We're not all going to die. No, what they saw, because they knew the Bible, the Old Testament prophesied that a son of David would come and defeat the power of sin, hell, and the grave in the future. That was the prophecy. And as they watched David slay Goliath and take his head and separate it from his body, completely killing the enemy, completely killing the giants. They saw the big picture, the big predictions, their struggles, that their savior and Messiah was coming, that their addictions, their struggles, their challenges, their sin that was weighing heavy on their hearts was one day going to be defeated by the true and perfect Messiah, Jesus. They didn't have to work harder. They didn't have to fight harder. They didn't have to slay their own giants. Jesus slayed the giant and he slayed it for us as well. We need to receive the grace of God because that is our weapon against our Goliaths. And how this plays out practically, because I know that this sounds very spiritual, and it's like, how do we slay Goliath with, with grace? What do we do with that? It means every single day when we face these challenges, we go to God in prayer, or we lift our hands in worship, and we surrender our lives to Jesus. 
We say, God, I can't do it. I need you. God, I'm not strong enough. I need your strength. I need your grace. We need the power of God. And when the Bible says that, that David, he came against Goliath in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, this is how he did it. He was surrendered to the will of God, surrendered to the plan of God, and surrendered to following Jesus in every area of his life. Dying to himself, dying to his selfishness, dying to his own dreams, and following Jesus. And so as we close today with our last song, we're going to finish with communion as well. And so you can take out your communion if you'd like to. And I just want to read a scripture for us before we take communion. And then I'm going to, I'm going to give us about 30 seconds or so to just pray silently. And then I'll close us in prayer. But here's what the Bible says about our true and perfect Savior who came to crush our giant. It says, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus, we come before you today so thankful. And Lord, it was a a brutal death and Lord, a sacrifice that your father made. But Lord, we received the blessing of it. Lord, when you went to the cross and you sacrificed yourself for our sins, it was the only thing that could slay our giant of sin. And so, Lord, we come before you so thankful for the blessing that you gave us of eternal life and peace here in our lives here on earth. Lord, there are so many challenges and so many struggles, but through it all, I pray that we could surrender ourselves to you. Whether it's we need to surrender our marriage or our money or whatever it might be, Lord, to you, I pray that your Holy Spirit, Lord, gives us the power and the encouragement and the wherewithal to recognize, Lord, that we are sinful, but you are the one who freed us. And when we surrender our lives to you and live under your grace, and not by our own works that nobody can boast, but Lord, we live under your grace. Lord, we will watch our giants fall. We will watch the giant of sin, hell, and the grave fall before our eyes as we are released from the power of sin. Lord, no more addiction, no more struggle with anxiety. A peaceful marriage, Lord, it all sounds beautiful and amazing. And we get that when we follow you and surrender to you. And so, Lord, we look to you right now, Lord. We cannot do anything on our own. We are not strong enough. We're not big enough. We don't have the skills. We don't know what to do. Goliath is too big, Lord, but you have the answers, Lord. You fight for us. We need to stand still and see the salvation of our God. Stand still and watch as you fight for us on our behalf to free us from what we need to be free from. God, we love you and we praise you. Amen.